Uh, so this morning, I, I wanted to take a look at a text, uh, a passage of scripture that first was presented to a group of people that were also at a critical point on the great adventure that God had in store for them. And when we look at that text, we're going to see um, that in this passage, there's a foundational truth, a foundational duty based on that truth, and then uh, a foundational response to invest in the next generation. Okay, so this morning we're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're going to see that it's it's a message intended um, for families uh, so that they would thrive, so that they would thrive. And I don't want to lose any of you guys at the beginning here, because I know not all of you are parents. Some of you are in the same stage of life as me, and you have kids at home, and so when you talk about families, there is some very real and some very direct application that will be speaking straight to you. But today we're going to talk about families, and um, church, we're the family of God, are we not? Brothers and sisters in Christ, um, there is very real application for all of us. So I may make some application, and I may say, I may be speaking the language of parents and children. I'll kind of go back and forth between that. Um, But for each of you, I want you to consider your own stage of life. You may not have kids yet, or maybe you had kids who have long left, or, or whatever your stage, stage of life is. I want you to consider, who are the people uh, that you have the greatest influence on in your life? Who are the people closest to you that you have relationship with that you can invest in, that God can use you to disciple, mentor, um, or if they're older than you, more wise, mature, that you can just invest and share in? These are the people I want you to consider as we move forward into the text. So Deuteronomy. I chose an exciting book to get started here, huh? (laughs) That's one of those books you get real fired up for. You know, when I was younger, um, I took the challenge to go and read through the Bible from from beginning to end several times, uh, which is a great thing to do. And there's different ways to approach that. But, you know, I tried to to go from beginning to end. And you get all fired up in Genesis and Exodus. And then if you don't get lost in Leviticus and New or Numbers, you get to Deuteronomy, all 34 chapters. This is where I would normally... uh, start doubting um, this exciting plan of trying to to read through the entire thing. Uh, It can be tough to read, but as you get to know me a little better, you're going to see that one of uh, my favorite things to do um, is to go go to some of the the tougher books in the Bible, or the longer books, the more intimidating ones, and make them more approachable. Because when you peel back the layers and you learn a little bit of the context, um, every piece of the Word of God can speak into your life in powerful ways. So today, I want to take a look at the book Deuteronomy. And um, before we actually dive into the text, we'll be in chapter 6 if you want to start heading in that direction, I want to give you a little bit of context. So first of all, what kind of book is this? What's the genre of Deuteronomy? Well, it's not a narrative like, like we know of in, in Genesis and Exodus. It's not a poem, not poetry. Uh, it's not a letter. Book of Deuteronomy... You start reading through it, it sounds an awful lot like a sermon. And that's because when it was, it was originally an address, a series of addresses uh, that Moses gave to the people of Israel before they were going to enter into the promised land. And this address, it, its structure, it had a particular form. Okay, so you're reading through this and not aware of this. It just kind of seems weird how things are, are kind of placed. There's a lot of repetition, things you've already read, you already know. But God did this for a reason. The form of Deuteronomy, it takes the form of a covenant, okay? A covenant document. Um, so what is, a, what is a covenant document? Well, that's something that 
in the ancient Near East, uh, this was pretty common. You see, kings, they would have covenants with their people in the ancient Near East, okay? And so, you know, the king would be laying out saying, I'm your king, you are my people. These are all the stipulations. You can see up here, I've got an illustration on this slide um, to kind of help, help work through some of this technical stuff I'm talking about here. You can see on the left what the form of an ancient Near East covenant might look like. Preamble, um, historical prologue, general stipulations, specific stipulations, divine witnesses, blessings, and cursings. And then on the right, you can see there's the structure of Deuteronomy, and it looks an awful lot like what those covenant forms would look like. So, um, so this was very intentional. And so the people who knew about covenants, and they knew what that meant when a king spoke to people, when God gave them a covenant, light bulbs would go off because they knew what that meant. Except this wasn't an earthly king given in a covenant here. This was the king of kings, God Almighty, given in a covenant to the people. Now, reading Deuteronomy, many of you guys know the book of Exodus, and you know this, well, we got the, we got the covenant. The Israelites got the covenant back in the book of Exodus after um, God delivered them out of Egypt, out of bondage, um, and then at Mount Sinai they got the covenant. This is not a new covenant. This is a renewing of the original covenant that the people got. And so that's the context. That's what's going on. And so when I struggle reading through Deuteronomy and I don't understand why this is placed here, and um, this helps me. So I hope this helps you. Um, so what's the setting? Okay. So I said this was a renewing of the covenant. Well, okay, so the Israelites have been wandering in the land, and a whole, new in, genera- whole generation has passed since they received the first covenant. They've been wandering, and now they are on the brink of crossing into the promised land. I mean, this is an exciting time for the people. They're about to go into the promised land, led by God. God is going to deliver them um, in, in victorious battles um, with different people, and God is going to bring them into the land that they promised. An exciting time, and God wants to make sure that they are prepared. Because God doesn't want them to just survive in the land. God wants his people to thrive. So this is a family setting. You've got husbands and wives, children, everybody, all gathered together. Moses is giving this address, this co- which takes this covenant form from God to the people. And we're going to jump in in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is really the heart of this entire book of Deuteronomy. This is the heart and um, happens to contain the, the primary message of Deuteronomy. So this is where we're going to pick up the text. Deuteronomy chapter 6. If you'll join me, we've got brand new pew Bibles. This Deuteronomy is the fifth book in your Bible, fifth book in what's known as the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses written by, written by Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to move pretty fast through these first three verses. They pretty much set the stage for the stuff we're going to be talking about today. But the first three verses... Now these are the commandments, statutes, and ordinances that the Lord your God instructed me to teach you so that that you may carry them out in the land where you are headed and that you may so revere the Lord your God that you will keep all his statutes and commandments that I am giving you, you, your children, and your grandchildren, all your lives to prolong your days. Pay attention, Israel, and be careful to do this so that it may go well with you. And that you may increase greatly in number, as the Lord, God of your ancestors, said to you, you will have a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, 
Like I said, this is setting the stage, and I just want to point out a couple of things to help give us a little more context. You know, first in verse 1, it says, Now these are the commandments, statutes, and ordinances. Sounds like three different plural things that talk about a bunch of technical laws. Commandments, statutes, and ordinances. Well, actually, net, the Net Bible here did a little bit of interpretation. The commandments is actually singular in the original language. That one's singular, the other two are plural. What could be the reason for that? Well, there's a lot of speculation, and, you know, it's, it's really just kind of a fine detail that no one, we don't really know for sure. Um, some speculate, and I think the Net Bible, that's why they translate it this way, speculate that the commandment means the Ten Commandments. They were actually, the Ten Commandments are, are listed in, in chapter 5, right before this piece here. And so maybe the commandment refers to collectively the Ten Commandments, um, and then also the statutes and the ordinances. But um, I tend to think a slightly different explanation, that the commandment refers to one particular commandment that is at the root of this book. And not only the root of this book, but the root of all scripture. Um, one commandment, and so maybe a, a slightly better translation would, would be, now this is the commandment, namely the statutes and ordinances. So the statutes and ordinances flow out of this one important commandment. I'll just leave it there for now. We're going to come back to that. All right, the other thing that I want to point out, um, I want to ask the question, why does the Lord desire obedience? Obedience seems to be a theme throughout this book of laws, statutes, ordinances. Why does he desire obedience? We, well, we see a couple things here in these three verses. Um, first one in verse two, uh, it says, so that you, may, that you may so revere the Lord your God. Obedience is supposed to drive us to a posture of reverence and awe before God. God cares about our hearts. He cares about our attitudes. He's giving them instructions that he wants to draw them to a place uh, where they are in awe of God. And at, you look closely at how the wording is here. It almost seems kind of circular. O obedience leading to reverence and awe, and reverence and awe leads so that you keep all the statues and, and, the, and the commandments. So obedience leads to reverence and awe. Reverence and awe leads to obedience. But God desires our reverence and awe before him. Um, Another thing that it says here, you see language of prosperity kind of listed throughout. Let's see, some of the words that are, that are listed. Um, we've got prolong your days so that it may go well with you, so that you may increase in number. Okay, these aren't individual promises to individual people. This is specific general promises to the, the people collectively. Oh, people of Israel, do this so that you will prosper and so that you have a long life in the land. Uh, he's speaking to the people collectively. He's not saying individually you will get this, this, and this. But the general theme that I see, see here is God wants his people to thrive. That's why he gives instruction. That's why he desires obedience. He wants it to go well with his people. He wants them to thrive in the new land. So that set the stage for us. And now we're going to move on to verses 4 and 5, which central theme of the book of De Deuteronomy and that to the Jews look to the Old Testament I mean this was one of the passages I mean this was the this became like their covenant uh, it was their 
or it was their um, constitutional statement, if you will. Um, this is one of the most important verses to them. Uh, one of the most cent- it's the central message of Deuteronomy and Israel's basic confession of faith. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. Listen. Other translations go with hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all your strength. 16 words. Two short, sweet, simple statements. Um, But these two lines, these 16 words, we see the fundamental truth of Israel's religion and the fundamental duty uh, that was based on it, that was founded upon it. Let's look closer at these uh, 16 words. One commentator, he had to say, it is the expression of the essences of all of God's person and purposes in 16 words of human text. That's a pretty bold statement. All right. Well, let's look first at verse 4. This is the foundational truth for Israel, expressed in two parallel phrases. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. In the Hebrew text, it's even shorter. Just the Lord, God, the Lord, one. What do we see here? Well, it's expressing the uniqueness of God. The Lord. I mean, God could be a general term. The cultures had gods. All the nations had different gods. But this is saying the Lord, the one true God, the real God, the God who created the heavens and earth, the God who is in control of all things, the one and only God is God. It, it is taking a stand and saying, you know, this is, this is our foundation. We are grounded in the fact that the Lord alone is our God. And this was important because they did live in a world that acknowledged multiple gods. They were going into a culture that was going to try to seduce them with the allure of what these other gods might offer. Sounds completely foreign to us, but I don't think it's, it's really that far off. I believe we also live in a culture that would try to seduce us with gods um, that, that would try to offer more than what our true God can offer, and they fall short. What are those gods? Materialism? Money? Sexuality? Sensuality? Uh, what about pleasure? Hedonism? Popularity? Power? Is ringing any chords with any of y'all? I know it convicts me. These are, um, these are absolutely things that, that just send messages and try to seduce us away from standing on the foundation of the one true Lord God. This was so important for the, um, for the Israelites to stand on this foundation and to recognize this before they were to go into the land. It's important for us. The second phrase, it says, the Lord is one. It expresses the, um, the unity of God. Not sure if this is exactly um, what it's talking about here, but since we know so much more about God through the rest of Scripture, the Lord is one. This, this helps, us, um, helps us out with an understanding of the Trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that may not be what they're talking about here, but when we look at the entirety of Scripture and say the Lord is one, um, Absolutely, one God, three persons. And that, that is a huge part of the uniqueness of our Lord God that the other, other cultures that they would be going into 
Um, they didn't have that. Proper Trinitarian theology is so important. Um, a lot of times we just kind of gloss by, yeah, sure, one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We, just, we know that to be true, but how does that impact our lives? Well, that's a whole different sermon, but um, I will say that a proper view of who God is and how he works in one God and three persons, that affects so many of the issues that we deal with. We try to tell people about God's idea for marriage. We can't do it unless it's grounded into a view of who God is, unity and diversity. We try to, to help people understand the church, and that falls short if we don't get the fact, one God, three persons, unity and diversity. A proper view of God is so important and has huge implications um, into all the issues that we deal with in life. So the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The principle here is that thriving families know God deeply. There's so much we can add to this statement, um, to these, this simple statement um, that we know of God to be true from the rest of Scripture. But this is, I mean, this is the foundation. All else builds on this and is basic to this. Um, and the Israelites so needed this reminder. It's a shame, but you know, they were delivered out of Egypt, experienced one of the greatest miracles short of the cross when they were delivered through the Red Sea and the, the Egyptian army was crushed. I mean, what a miracle. You would think that this would be a faith builder that would last forever. And they, they get past that and they get the law and, and the covenant from God and they so quickly forget everything and they start to doubt. They start to lose trust in God. This is a foundation that we need to always return to, to know who God is, what he's capable of, what he has done, um, because we so easily and so quickly forget as well who God is. Church, we need to declare his name with confidence. Recall what he's done in the past. The Lord is our God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. The Lord is our God. He created me. He created each and every one of you. We are wonderfully made in his image. The Lord is our God. He has redeemed us. He sent his one and only son to take on human flesh on this world, live a sinless life, suffer and die on a cross, taking on the sins of the entire, of entire humanity so that we might live. The Lord is our God. The Lord is our God who sends his Holy Spirit to live inside of us, giving us power, providing us direction. God inside of us. The Lord is our God. So have you seen God at work in your life? I mean, I just list, listed some of, the, some of the big, huge things, but just what are the little things? Where have you seen God? These are the things that we need to, to, to just grasp onto or cling onto, hold onto desperately to remember who God is. Deanna and I have seen his faithfulness time and time again. We've seen his protection in times of danger. We've seen his provision in incredible ways when we didn't expect it. We've seen his direction. He led us here. The Lord is our God. We need to look for him in all the things of life. And that gives us confidence to, to declare this statement. Chuck Swindoll, he had a quote that I thought was helpful in amplifying uh, this phrase from the Shema. The Lord is our God. We acknowledge his presence, his uniqueness, his place, his right to rule over us. We seek his will. We endeavor to walk in his way. Thriving families know God deeply. And only then, when we know God deeply, are we able 
to follow the command that follows that. And this is found in verse 5. Thriving families love God completely. It says, you must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all of your strength. Love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and all of your strength. Now this is the central command, I believe, in Deuteronomy. If you look through Deuteronomy, there's all sorts of ordinances, all sorts of laws, commands, instructions, but that theme of love is all the way throughout. And if you, you look through all of Scripture, that theme of love is the strand that is found all the way throughout. God desires us to love him. Um, one commentator said, the entire book is a commentary on the command which stands at the beginning. God talks a lot about obedience here in the book of Deuteronomy, but that only happens as a response of love. We are called to love. Everything else, that flows out of our love for God. Can't do it, can't obey on our own. If it isn't through the power of God's love in us, and if it isn't an expression of love. I think it's also important to remember that this is a covenant, okay? It's not talking about emotional love. Emotions of love for God are great. I have that. I have that most of the time. Um, it's hard to kind of just go on the emotion of love when you're in the midst of the stuff that life can throw at you and you just don't, you just don't understand why and where is God. If your love is just based on emotions, that's not going to hold firm. That's not a solid foundation. We need to remember first who God is and his love for us and have that foundation. Um, and remember a covenant with a God who redeemed us and did so much. Uh, that's the only way to, lo- to love God completely through whatever life may throw at us. Sounds an awful lot like a marriage, right? <laughs> so how should we love the Lord? Okay, sounds good. Love the Lord. How should we do it? Well, it gives us instructions here, right? It kind of breaks it down. Love the Lord your God with your whole mind. Other translations will say heart, uh, but the reason the net goes with mind is because in the ancient Near East, to refer to the heart is talking about the cognitive, um, the way you think. So love the Lord God with your whole mind, your whole being. This is talking about your will, your sensibilities, everything inside of you, your whole being, your soul. And it says, love the Lord your God with all your strength. I mean, every physical thing inside of you, love the Lord God with all your strength. Okay, so we've got your whole mind, your whole being, your whole strength. What's left? Nothing. That, it, this is saying we are to love God with our entirety, with every ounce of us. That's how we are to love the Lord. Um, it is not enough to love God partially. It's not enough to love God on Sundays and Wednesdays. It's not enough to love God when things are going well in your life. Um, that's, not how, that's not how God loves us. God loves us completely through all things. Uh, we need to be giving God our complete love with all of us. So we've camped out in verse 5 here for a little bit. Does it sound familiar to you all who, who maybe know the t- New Testament a little bit? Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. 36. This is one example of uh, three of the four Gospels where this was quoted by our Lord Jesus. Uh, here he was asked, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. So this central uh, command here in Deuteronomy, it's taken and even magnified when, um, when Jesus presents it. Um, Jesus narrows it down to these two things. Now, love for neighbor isn't mentioned here in Deuteronomy. It is mentioned in Leviticus. Um, but note in verse 40 there, it says, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Um, all of the law, everything depends first on our love for God. So this command to love deeply is a strand that runs all the way through your Bible. Thriving families, they know God deeply. They love God completely. This is a foundation. This is a huge foundation, and it is so important to have this inside of us and make that a part of our lives. But it doesn't stop there. That's not quite enough. There's more to this passage, more to this sermon. Thriving families invest in the next generation. They invest in the next generation. All right, let's look at verses 6 through 9. Deuteronomy 6, 6 says, These words I am commanding you today must be kept in mind, and you must teach them to your children, and speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, and as you get up. You should tie them as a reminder on your forearm and fasten them as symbols on your forehead. Inscribe them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. All right, so clearly there's a lot in here about, you know, instructions for discipleship, instructions for investing in others. Um, but let's not jump too far too soon. We, we need to take note of the first part of verse 6. It says, these words I am commanding you today must be kept in mind, must be kept in your mind. You know, I get fired up about discipleship. I get fired up about, you know, sharing the love of God and truths of God in other people's lives. But I, can, I cannot do it on my own strength. I can't do it in my own wisdom unless I've made these truths true in my life first. That's what this is saying first. It must be true in your life first before you can share it with others. Um, the example of the, the airplane going down. Okay, so I haven't flown in a long time, but I used to fly a lot. And it gets to the point where you start ignoring the instructions at the beginning where they talk about what to do in the event of anything. Um, but... Uh, they say it the same way every time. In, in the event that the plane's going down, that oxygen mask comes down. This is important stuff, right? That oxygen mask comes down. You put yours on first. You fasten yours on first. You do not go to your child. You do not go to your spouse. You do not go to grandma, the friend next to you, until you fastened your oxygen mask on first because you are no good to them until you've taken care of, care of yourself first. Um, we need to be, have these truths true in our lives, and then we can be of use uh, to, to the people sitting next to us. Uh, we, I, parents, I know you desperately want to, to uh, invest in them and to bring these truths into to their lives, um, but if you haven't put your mask on first, you're not going to be able to help them. Besides, truth transfers more permanently when it's not just being talked about, but when it just flows out of your life and when, they will, when they're able to see it through your life and through your actions, right? Parents, we know this is true, um, for better or for worse sometimes, right? Um, 
you know, I just think about how special it was. Uh, at our last church, uh, I got to go visit my, my son, Garrett. He's, he's five and a half. I got to go visit his Sunday school class. It, it was pretty neat to be in there in the back, dad in there in the class. Uh, and, and Deanna was also in the room because she was a regular volunteer. So we're both there in the class, and I'm just kind of in the back hanging out. And uh, the children's ministry director, she was in there, and uh, she was giving an illustration, and she had this big, huge stoplight. And so she says, okay, kids, red light, green light, yellow light. What is the, when the red light goes off, what do you do? And all the kids are in there, and they yell, stop. That's great. That's great. Now the green light, when you see the green light, what do you do? That means go. Yes, you're right. That's great. They all scream that. And then the yellow light. What does the yellow light mean? And only one voice yells out, that means go faster. <laughs> That's right. That one voice was Garrett Wells. And uh, everybody in the room is looking at me and Deanna. And I'm not going to point any fingers, but um, Garrett's in the car a whole lot more with... Uh, with um, <laughs> I'll just stop there before I get in trouble. <laughs> but yeah, kids are watching. They're paying attention and they're learning. And uh, that example makes, makes me shake my head and laugh. Um, but it's so cool when Garrett, you know, will see something bad happen on the side of the road and Garrett will say, we need to pray for those people um, because he knows that's what we do and he's watching and he's paying attention. And two-year-old Nolan, he, he's trying to fold his hands and figure that out. He has no clue what's going on, but, but he knows and he's seeing it and he's living it. Um, they're paying attention. And when these truths, these foundational truths are in your lives and on your mind and on your heart, um, it will overflow, just naturally overflow into the lives of those people around you. So first, make sure that it's in your life. Um, and then it goes on to say, and you must teach them to your children. You must teach them to your children. I want to stop here for a second. This, is, this word teach, in our net version translation here, this is the second time we've seen the word teach. Um, but in the original text, it's actually two different terms. And the NIV actually captured this greatly, if any of y'all have your NIV. The word in the NIV is not teach. It is, um, they use the word impress. Because this term here uh, for teach in verse 7, it actually uses um, a little more rare Hebrew form that intensifies the verb. So we're not just talking about a normal pattern of the verb, but with intensity and repetition. So impress these words, these instructions, in your children. So what does impress mean? Um, that's not a word I use in my vocabulary too often, uh, but impress. You can imagine the image, you know, picture a really cool sculpture that you may have seen that's just been around forever and that's got um, an engraving on the bottom. And you can imagine the engraver who's got this incredible task um, and he's got his chisel, he's got his hammer, and he just goes in for each letter with the, you know, the greatest precision and the greatest amount of care to make sure that that message comes through. And when he's done, and he's taken that kind of care and that kind of precision, and he's impressed these words on that monument, this is a message that is not going away. This is a message that generations down the road will all be able to see. That's what's going on here, not just merely teaching. Teaching's good, but we're talking about impressing these words and this foundation into our children, into the next generation, into your friends, if those are the people in your life, into your uh, 
people in your community, whoever, are teaching the truths to impress is what's going on here. So how do you impress? How do we apply this? Well, we've got three practices here in the text, I think. So let's, uh, let's look at that again. So you must teach them to your children and speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, and as you lie down. Okay? As you speak of them, as you sit in your house, walk along the road, lie down, and as you get up. Okay, so this is, um, do you see the hyperbolic language here? This is hyperbolic language. It's actually something called a merism. I learned a new word too. Merism, that's what's going on here. So that means two terms that are opposites, which are used to mean the entirety, okay? So when are we supposed to speak to our children about these things? As you sit in your house, okay? As you sit in your house, so that means inactivity, right? Okay? But then also, as you walk along the road, activity. So speak to them during inactivity, speak to, speak to them during activity. So when? Always. Then it goes on to say, as you lie down, so nighttime, and as you get up, daytime. Nighttime, daytime, all right, so when? Always. This is saying we need to be te- speaking about these truths, speaking about these foundational truths and everything that we know of God and how we are to love God. We're supposed to be doing this constantly. Um, thriving families talk about the Lord constantly. We need to be looking for teachable moments. We don't need to look very far. They happen all the time. Driving home from church, hey, what'd you learn today? At the dinner table, how'd you see God at work at your life? Or maybe struggling with something going on at school or at work, what do you think God has to say about that? Teachable moments are everywhere. We just need to learn how to, and train ourselves to turn them into spiritual conversations. Might take practice, but we can do it. What else does it say? Second practice is found in verse eight. Okay, it says, you should tie them as a reminder on your forearm and fasten them as symbols on your forehead. Okay, this is an interesting one. What do you think? Should we take this one literally or metaphorically? Well, there's nothing wrong with trying to do this literally, um, although I don't think that's what the text is going for here. The Jewish um, audiences, the Jews, ever since post-biblical times up to modern times, um, they took a stab at applying this literally. This is something called a phylactery. I learned another new word this week, a phylactery. So that box there, it's actually got parchment in there with passages in there. So they tie that around their forehead and on their forearms, and they've got these words on their forehead and on their forearms. Now, uh, you turn this into a legal exercise and say that this is you know, something you have to do, and that's where you go wrong. And there's actually a, a passage in the book of Matthew where Jesus is criticizing the Pharisees for doing that. Uh, but to have a physical, physical reminder, that's a great thing. But I'm not suggesting we all go out and make phylacteries today and walk around and do that. Um, some other ways that we can apply this. How, do, how can we do this in our life? Um, so this is, they put on these phylacteries, they tie them around their forehead and, and up forearms as a way to remember what the Lord has done and to keep that close. How can we do that? How do we remember what the Lord has done? Well, we've seen it the last two Sundays in baptism. That's certainly a way to do that. The Lord's Supper, we do that regularly here. That's a way of remembering. How else can we do it? There's practical ways too. 
You may have heard the term spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices. This, this is a word that I used to be turned off against because it just it sounds, sounds legalistic. Um, um, my eyes have been opened. Spiritual practices, uh, spiritual disciplines, these are exciting ways of drawing closer to the Lord and remembering him in different tangible ways. Prayer is a basic spiritual practice. There are so many different ways to pray, models of prayer and ways to pray. Um, This is something you can do as a family, as a remembrance. Um, What else? The music we listen to, that's a way to remember. Serving others is a tangible way. You you go as a family and you serve others and you talk about why you're doing and how you're showing the love of God in a tangible way. That counts. When you give the offering, um, there's a lot of different tangible things we can do to remember who God is and how we are to love him um, and how he works in our life. So thriving families practice spiritual disciplines together. Third practice. So thriving families talk constantly. They practice, they do spiritual practices together. Third practice we see see here in verse nine. It says, inscribe them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Well, here's another one where I ask the question, literal, metaphor, um, again, uh, post-biblical Judaism up till today, um, they found a way to do this literally. And this actually looks kind of cool. That's something called a mezuzah. And inside that little um, metal receptacle, it also has words of scripture inside. And they put it on the doorpost. So that's kind of cool. But I'm still not suggesting that this passage says, this is what we need to do. If you want to get a mezuzah, that's kind of cool. But uh, um, how do we do this in real life? You know, as I, as I reflect about what it would mean when I think about my doorpost, that's the last thing that I see when I go into the world. And that's the first thing that the world sees when they look at my house, right? So what this says to me, what this says to me is that um, when you're going out into the world, are you still remembering who God is? Are you still making a point of loving God completely? This is the reminder to you as you go into the world that the Lord is still your God and you, you know, and to follow him completely. And then what this also does is the world looking at me and at my family, do they see the light of Christ in us? So that's how we practice this. Um, So thriving families, They demonstrate God's love in the world and to the world. That's what I think verse 9 is saying. Thriving families know God deeply. They love God completely, and they invest in the next generation. Well, we've we've covered a lot of ground in these these nine verses. I want to leave you with two specific ways about about how you can apply this immediately. What what can we do? Well, discipleship begins at home. the first thing that I leave with you, the first principle I leave with you is um, weave spiritual conversations and spiritual practices into your daily rhythms. Um, like I said, at first it may not seem as natural, but it will become natural as you start to just make them part of your daily rhythm. Um, you can start driving home from church. What'd you learn today? Let me give you three simple questions. I think these three simple questions are so helpful in having a conversation about the things of the Lord, no matter where you are. It could be driving home, mealtime, could be with your care group, could be at a meal with a, some, somebody you're mentoring. 
Um, it can be with your kids at any time. Three simple questions. The first one is, what is God teaching you? This is a knowledge-based question, right? What is God teaching you? The next one is, how is God changing you? It's transformation. How is God changing you? And that could be, what is God convicting you to do to change? How is God changing you? What does God want you to do? What does God want you to do to make an impact on others? What action do you need to take? So you've got knowledge, transformation, and action. Three simple questions that you can have in, you know, any environment uh, with people of any age um, to talk about the things of the Lord and to build on that foundation. Um, let me give you an illustration. Jonathan Baker's sermon last week, that was awesome stuff to have one of our missionaries here. Um, walking away from that sermon, a conversation with the kids, could be something like, um, what, what was God teaching you when you heard that sermon? Well, I heard about how God loves the entire world, and God wants the entire world to hear about him, um, and how Christ died for, how Christ died for them, uh, and that there are so many people out there that don't know this, so many people globally, like places like Mexico where Jonathan is, but also people here in El Reno and in our, our, our region here that need to know about Jesus. That's what I learned. Okay, well, how's God changing you? What's God putting on your heart when you hear that? Okay, well, I'm, I'm really feeling a burden to, to reach out for, to people that don't know about Jesus, that don't know God. Uh, I'm feeling, feeling like I want to get um, involved and know more about what Jonathan is doing in Mexico, but I... I He's giving me a heart for the people here and at school and at work. And, um, okay, so what does God want you to do? Well, he's, I think God wants me to go out and talk to people about Jesus. I mean, this is, this is just, you know, you take three simple questions and, um, and uh, life change can happen in that. Um, the church and the families are partners. But families, that's where discipleship is really at. The church only gets you and your kids Sunday for a couple hours, Wednesday for a couple hours. Uh, but this place has to take place in families, has to take place in those, those relationships that, um, that are much further out and deeper than just Sunday and Wednesday. So we need to weave spiritual conversations and practices into our daily rhythms. Second application for you. Who's God putting on your heart? Who does God want you to invest in? Who does God want you to invest in? Maybe it is someone just in your family that you need to be talking to a little bit more and just being a little more intentional. Parents, kids are obvious. Um, but family of God, church, I mean, who is God calling you to invest in here um, within our church and within our community? Our children's ministry has some great momentum right now. I, it's just been incredible for me to come in here and, and just hear it about how it's been growing numerically, but then also just the growth that's been going in our kiddos. There's other ways. There's, there are many ways to invest in people here at Houston's Church. We've got great momentum in our student ministry, too. But I tell you what, there's a huge need uh, with our, our young adults, our college-age folks. You know, this was, that was the time in my life where I, I really um, caught fire serving for the Lord because people invested in me when I was in college. Because, you know, that's, that's the phase in your life where you were making decisions. You decide which road you're going to follow. Um, so these, these are just examples. There's so many different ways to invest in people here at the church. Um, but the key is to figure out who, who does God want you to invest in? 
you, you don't have to have been um, a Christian for a long period of time to start having an influence in other people. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to go to seminary. You just have to be willing to love on people. That's what, that's what it takes. Uh, we'll train you for the other stuff. All right. So thriving families know God deeply, they love God completely, and they invest in the next generation. Like I said, this is an exciting time to be a part of Houston Church. Just as the Israelites were on the brink of stepping off on their great adventure, ad- adventure that we see here in Deuteronomy, um, God's got some great stuff in store for us. How, how is God going to use you and your family uh, as we move forward? How does God want to use you to invest in the next generation? Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for who you are. You are indeed the Lord, our God. This is your church, Lord. We are your people. We are in awe of who you are and how you work in incredible ways. Lord, may may we never stop loving you completely with our entire lives. May this be our foundation. Lord, help us to to catch the vision um, of how you want to make disciples through Houston Church in incredible ways. How do you want to use each of us um, on that journey, Lord? We're excited to see what you're going to do here, Lord. And we, we give you all the glory. Amen.